an exciting day because the UK's biggest rugby newspaper is starting its own podcast. A very warm welcome to the first episode of the Rugby Paper podcast. Please join us every week for in-depth analysis into the events of the Six Nation, as well as discussion on the relevant goings-on on and off the pitch in rugby. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, Brendan. Welcome, Nick. And a very warm welcome to our special guest, Derek Glascott. It's obviously very exciting. And the first thing I want to address is the tournament as a whole. Is this Six Nations arguably the most competitive in recent memory? I'd say it has to be. Um, if you discard Italy, this has got to be uh, the most rounded, most competitive Six Nations we've seen for a long, long time. I don't think it's uh, the most competitive we've seen in a long time. I, I, I think Ireland and France are, are way ahead at the moment. I'm based that just on the performances of the autumn. I thought England were stuttering. Scotland, I think, there's no news on Scotland. They they continue to give us the hope that they're going to really challenge, but never do. I mean, the results in the last 20 years tell us everything we need to know. I don't think this side's any better than ones that they've been in that last 20 years. So, and Wales, <laughs> we've written them off too many times. Uh, I think they've got three home games in this tournament, but I just see France... And Ireland, as performance-wise, current form, I, I think they it's the, the championship is between those two. And in that realm of France and Ireland, do you think it's a case of winning mentality being potentially the biggest difference in that Ireland, you've got a team who have won when it mattered, whereas you've got a France team that is very much sort of finding its way at the top? Well, you know, mental strength's obviously very important, but it's usually... You know, given that in, in key games, both teams are going to be incredibly motivated. I think home advantage and the pressure that that puts on referees very often is a critical factor. And that is why I would take France to win it. Wales do have a knack for performing on the big stage when it matters. Um, and that's certainly been the case in the last three World Cups. That was certainly the case. No one had had them as tournament victors last year and they managed to come out as champions do you think they're a dark horse this year despite all the injury turmoil that they're suffering from at the moment if they were starting in Cardiff you'd feel a bit more confident but that is a hell of a match away to Ireland first up and if they take a beating and they could well take a beating because Ireland are in that sort of mood I think it's going to be a very tough tournament so you know a lot always depends on the first matches obviously in all six in six nations but that is a really really tough start for Wales and I fear for them the England team has just come out um, at the time of recording. Nick, I know you'll be a happy man because you will have seen that Tom Curry has shifted from, from eight back to seven. Um, how much do you think that will benefit his impact in the game and also benefit England in having a genuine number eight in Sam Simmons? I think that there's uh, that it, it's good to see him back at seven because he's he's not at his best at eight and he doesn't have the same impact at eight. But it's still quite an odd back row for me because... They haven't got a line-out, you know, a real line-out option in the back row. It's a short back row, you know. I mean, the tallest guy in it, I think Ludlam might be 6'2". That's small by international standards. And Scotland, you know, proved at Twickenham last year they've got a handy line-out. And they've certainly got height at the back with Richie and, uh, lesser extent, Ferguson, but with Richie. So I... um, I've got mixed feelings about it, really. And um, he's also got the weight of the captaincy on him as well. I had a look this morning at the start of the last game at Twickenham. England conceded four penalties in the first five minutes. And by 
the time Van der Merwe scored his try in the 29th minute, they'd conceded 10 and had had Billy Vunipola yellow carded. If they concede 10 penalties in the first half hour at Murrayfield, they'll be dead in the water. As a matter of interest, Curry, you know, gave away a couple of those soft penalties, both of them, soft breakdown penalties. The scrum gave away a couple, and I see Ellis Genger's been picked again to start, as he did last year, ahead of Marla. I think that that's a mistake. Genger's improved. There's no question his scrummaging has improved. But Joe Marla, I know that he's had the COVID interruption and so on. Joe Marla is, you know, is a world-class loose head. And uh, England don't have many world-class props at the moment. I would have gone straight out and picked uh, Don Brandt. I think he's the form number number eight in the Premiership. I, I just think he's an outstanding ball carrier. Sam Simmons is a completely different number eight, completely different. He plays on the flanks and he gets in, in amongst his henchmen at Exeter. And he's the guy that, remember Neil Back, used to be at the back of that Leicester um, rolling mall after line outs and dot down those tries. And I, you know, Sam Simmons scores a lot of tries like that. And he tried, he scores some tries in the flanks. And I think it just doesn't have that heft that a, a number of really top quality eights have. And he won't have the backup of his flanks that he has at Exeter. They are monsters. And that allows Sam to play where he does. And if you look at the England back row, Ludlam and Curry, they're not huge. They're not monsters. I mean, they're all pretty similar. Tom Curry is good in the line-out. He's light enough to be lifted. They are missing another line-out option, which they normally have with uh, in recent times with Laws. It doesn't scare me, that England that England pack. I look at it and think, where's the attacking strength in that side? And of course, if they all play to their max, you are going to get the runners such as uh, Genge and Sinclair, you know, Toji, Ezekwe. But Ludlam... Well done to him, but I, I don't read about him much, and I don't see him much as a you know what, a star in the making or a star already. Uh, the back line, yeah, we thought Slade would be there because he was the current form. Stewart is magnificent at the moment. Smith, I really like. Ben Youngs is playing reasonably well. Marching on the wing, I probably would have played him on in the centre. Elliot Daly brings that threat of long range kicking. Uh, and experience, of course, which they're lacking. But this side is by no means, you know, as far off favourites going to play a game in, in Edinburgh. One idea I wanted to touch upon was Eddie Jones, his rather curious description of the roles of seven and eight being pretty much interchangeable. From what you're saying there, Jerry, I take it you don't agree with that and you think that a back row still has to be very much balanced with that powerhouse eight in the Billy Vunapola, Alex Dombrandt role. So you would like to see Sam Simmons as maybe an impact sub, but if he were to start at eight, two sort of more powerhousey sixes and sevens to back him up. It's just my eye. And I, you know, I think Dombrandt is, is more punchy, uh, has more of an impact as a ball carrier around the edges. Um, also, we've seen him on the flank as well, score tries. You've seen him diving in corners and scoring tries. So he's able to, to live in that area like Sam Simmons does, where, where you... I don't think see a lot of Don Brunt is where we see them in the rolling mall where he's at the back and he's dapping down after everybody else has done all the hard work to get them into that position. I just think for my eye, my fit for England, England seem to play better with a bigger number eight rather than, you know, try Curry. What impact has Curry had at eight? What impact has a lightweight number eight ever had with England? And you know, to be quite honest, when has a lightweight number eight ever been world-class, being picked into a World 15 side in any era? But that's, yeah, Sam Simmons is an awesome club player. I'm not sure he's going to be one of those players at international level that has a long career in um, internationals. 
I think that one of the key things about Don Brandt as well is his understanding with Marcus Smith. Now, I know that it's at club level, but they've built up almost a telepathic understanding. They find each other, you know, with huge consistency in really creative positions where they, they create line breaks and, and score tries. And, you know, that link and having that familiarity around for both of them early in their international career, I would have thought was was important. And I endorse everything that, you know, Jerry has said about, about Don Brandt and about Simmons as well, who's a fine player. I just feel that that back row looks underclubbed. I think underclubbing is very much a factor here, not only at number eight, but at 12. I always felt that England were best off having one, a big number eight, and two, some size in the midfield. Surprised by no Mark Atkinson in the squad, certainly. So where does England's firepower come in outside of 10? Well, I think if you look at the the back line, Freddie Stewart has been magnificent in the few caps that he's had. He's really made an impression. You you already can see that that is a long-term fixture. He looks incredibly competent. And, you know, as a former player, every time you see that ball go over your head, to know that 99% 99% of the time it's going to be caught, it's going to be fielded and in an attacking way. I mean, he's a big man, six foot three, six four, sixteen and a half stone. That's some security, which every team really, really enjoys. So he's got some punch and he's got some power. I don't think you're going to see Freddie Stewart come in a lot outside, say, Marcus Smith. It's more likely to be a forward when you get through the other phases. Um, so really, it's going to be more of the same as if Owen Farrell was there. I mean, that, that Owen has no impact at all taking a short, hard line off a fly half, running into maybe an opposition fly half, centre and back row. He's just not Tuolangi. He's not Jamie Roberts. You know, he doesn't have that bulk and he doesn't have that impact. So England will be going wide. They'll be running across the field. They'll be lessening the space for the likes of Mullins uh, and Joe Marchant, which they've been doing every single time. They play with uh, Ford and Farrell. The way they've got, a, they've got around that is that their forwards have played incredibly well. And, and have you know, been hard-hitting and, and really good ball carriers. You just wouldn't necessarily pick this side. I suppose if you had the players, if you only had, say, eight players to choose from in a back line, you might, might have got this seven. Um, but, I mean, it just shows in some ways how undercooked, under strength we are with class players in, in quite a few positions when you look at it. Ben Young's still there, creeping towards being the most capped English player of all time unless he's playing unbelievably well, this should have changed by now. But Eddie Jones doesn't seem to see that. And Elliot Daly, I thought, was long gone, but here, here he is back in. One of the things that strikes me at, at Scrum Aft is Young's, you know, still in pole position at Scrum Half. And the guy who sort of lit up the last 20 minutes against, or actually he was on for a bit longer against South Africa, Rafi Quirk, is nowhere to be seen. Now, I, I think Harry Randall's been playing well, but Quirk has done it in a big game and played a very important part in securing that win. And I just find the fact that he's, you know, the inconsistencies in selection are in many ways, you know, highlighted by the fact that he's disappeared out of the, uh, out of the 23. I mean, I'd love to go at Eddie. I'm really, you know, as w- us three, us four are really experienced coaches and have selected teams for a number of years and had that kind of qualification. He's done very little wrong, Eddie, as England coach. He's lost a World Cup final. They had a poor run of form. But given what's happened in the autumn, it seems very similar build-up and, and perform results anyway in terms of the lead-up a year and a half outside the last World Cup. So, um, yeah, whilst it's quite easy to, for us to have a go at him, we're kind of, he has got it right before. 
he's got it right before, definitely. But when you're, you know, when you're looking at a, a top end coach and you look at the way that England have this boom bust uh, system and the way in which his selection policy has, has not been easy to understand. If you could see a coherent uh, path with his selection, uh, then his position would be far stronger than I, than I believe that it is. I, mean, I think we've said before, Kaney, that of course we can all disagree, but a lot of quality sides pick themselves and not enough England players have consistently played well for this side to be consistent and selection be easy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the, the element of consistency is, is that when players do play consistently well, you know, he very often overlooks them. And my other big criticism of him is that he started this process of creating his New England far too late. He wasted a, a year. The reality is, is that he played a first team in an Autumn Nations Cup. He completely blew the opportunity of blooding players and seeing, you know, what his New England might look like a year before he actually got round to it. And when you... What, what what's always said about coaches is that, you know, the head coach's job, nine-tenths of it is selection. And for me, there are just far too many anomalies in terms of what's Well, we happening. could all be coaches in New Zealand because they pick themselves. The players are that good. Right. I can't wait for your debut into coaching, Will Caney. I mean, you seem to have it all sewn up, particularly well, that selection side. I'm looking forward to it, Jerry. <laughs> Take the world by storm, mate. <laughs> In the rugby paper's recent article uh, previewing the entire Six Nations, it was said that Scotland lacked the firepower to keep up in general. I personally don't see that as being a problem this weekend against this England pack. I don't know whether you guys agree. Well, I would just say with Scotland, we need to put things in perspective. They are flattered to deceive on many occasions. And I've lost count of the times I put a fiver on them to win the championship on the, on the back of one good performance. What I would say is that against England, they've only lost once in their last four matches and they played that England pack off the bloody park last year. I mean, that was a ridiculously low scoreline. They really beasted England. Um, and I don't see Scotland being any worse than they, than they played that day. They're at Murrayfield. They've got 67,000 crowd for the first time in a long time. I think this is a very, very difficult match for England. And I had Scotland down to win this even before I saw that team this morning. And I share with, with Jerry and Nick, I've got a few reservations about the, the England team as it's been announced. I'm full of hope that England might turn a bit of a corner in the coming weeks. But this, as with Wales in Dublin, this is a very, very difficult fixture first up. And I've got them down. I've got Scotland down for a win, and I'm not going to back away from that having seen the teams. So, you know, Scotland bring quite a bit to the table. If, if they play anywhere like they did at Twickenham last year, England won't win. England don't, don't go to Murrayfield with an aura. Scotland will feel that they, they have a better-than-even chance of winning it. They've grown in confidence, I reckon, as a result, even though the Lions Tour was a bit of a disaster in many, in many ways. But getting that many players selected, those players, I think, have grown as a consequence of it. England have got it all to do. I've got uh, quite a few emotions about this game. I've put down England to win. And after our brief conversation now, I, I want to change that to Scotland. I'm English, so I want England to win. <clears throat> I want Scotland to win to just upset the norm. Although, you know, Brendan quite rightly said that Scotland have won the most games in the recent times, but it would just throw everything up in the air and put so much pressure on England if they lost. Yeah. But of course, in my heart and head, I don't want that to happen. I want England to be successful and play brilliant rugby. But 
yeah, it's a bit of yin yang, devil angel. I, you know, the, I have been, I'm convinced right now that with our conversation that Scotland should win this. But I said this so many times before about Scotland should win at home. And they keep on you know, messing with my head because of results. And, and that's because there's no consistency in their performance. I'm not joking. They have a terrible overall win percentage since the Six Nations started um, 2000, 2001. It will, I'm not joking, gentlemen. It will not be over 40%. It is ridiculously poor. And that's because their home record has been atrocious. Maybe, again, you know, why don't I just go with the flow? This could be the start of something great for Scotland. Well, actually, great's too big. Uh, it could be something, the start of something good for Scotland. Because, yeah, on their day, I mean, I love Hamish Watson. I mean, he was rightly named player of the Six Nations last season. He was, he was brilliant. But for me, Scotland always lacked that firepower and punch up front to really cause consistent problems against side. But, hey, I love watching Finn Russell and Stuart Hogg with a ball in hand. Every time they get it, everybody gets up in their seat. We all edge a bit closer to the TV when they get it. There is excitement. They're still going to have to work hard to get that victory. The, the other thing here, by the way, is the weather forecast is absolutely Armageddon. 50-mile-an-hour winds, torrential rain. I really hope the weather gods move aside here. I would like to see a proper game of rugby between these two teams. Yeah, I just think there's a sort of air of consistency to Scotland that there hasn't been um, in recent years. All of a sudden, you can more or less predict 10 at least of the team that are going to be mainstays throughout the entire tournament. And I think, as you guys rightly say, they have zero reason to fear England. That sort of English beast that there was maybe five, six years ago is just no longer there, um, which I think is a massive, massive factor when England come to Murrayfield because it no longer feels like Scotland are sort of, they're hosting England, but rather they're looking to attack and get into England. And like you say, Brendan, I hope the weather gives them a chance to do that and we get to see some of that running rugby, both Finn Russell and Marcus Smith. Yeah, um, both sides. I'd like to see it. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Just we mentioned predictions and I just want to mention for our listeners that we are having a cumulative predictions league in which myself, <laughs> our panellists... <laughs> Worst nightmare, Jerry. <laughs> well, Jerry, I can give you the chance to change your prediction if you like. You had written to me England beating Scotland. You can change it, but it will be on no, our... No, let's have some fun. Like. It's what I said at the time. Uh, look, I will change my mind come Saturday afternoon when I'm sat with people watching the TV. I'll be convinced that England will win. So, yeah, I'll change my mind three or four times between now and kickoff. I think it just shows how much of a knife edge this game is currently on, which is very exciting. But, yeah, keep up to date with our league, which will be the panellists, myself, and our special guest, in this case, Jerry Guffscott, all vying against one another in a league-style format. So we'll see who comes up on top. Seeing as Jerry's painted himself into a corner here, um, I've got to confess I've done exactly the same. <laughs> so... I'll be backing them as well. I'm, my margin is one point. I think uh, it was 1817. Yeah. On to Ireland Wales. I want to talk about Wales first because Josh Adams has been announced as the 13 for Wales. No Jonathan Davis. Do we think it's the right call? Um, I, I would be, um, you know, I can't think. Is Jonathan Davis going to be around for the World Cup? Is he playing well enough to first keep his place? remain in the side and go that far. I think if I look at the Pet Centre partnership, I've always liked Tompkins. I, I think, you know, this is, and this is where, you know, if you get a, a, a tough, nuggety player of a certain size, they can take those hard lines, run direct, 
And what they can't do is knock a man over. So they run at an arm, they run at a little bit of space. And I think Tompkins at 12 has did it long enough, does it long enough for, for Saracens. Um, and he's on the international occasions, he's still direct, he's still punchy. So I still think he he's appropriate there. It's just not as big as the monsters that they've had in the past. Again, I always kind of think if a, if a club winger comes into the centre at international level, what do the other centres playing who qualify think about that? Are, are they just that bad? They're not good enough. Okay, take on board injuries. But hey, again, I'm not an international coach. I'm not a coach at any level. So PVAC can see some benefit in having him there and not someone, I guess, like uh, Watkin, who, who plays there week in, week out. So I guess we're bigger at 10 and captain, you've got the scoreboard ticking over nicely. It's whether it, Wales are going to get themselves in position to use that fantastic, fantastic boot of his. I'm glad to see Reese Zamet there. Again, he's so exciting. Yeah, he's, I saw him score a try against Newcastle where he just saw the wheels. I mean, he's so quick. His pace is electrifying and will scare that Irish defence and all defences. I have to say that I, looking at the uh, the Welsh the Welsh pack. It's a much bigger pack than you would imagine. Both Rollins and Beard at lock are huge men. And I was really impressed by Beard on the, uh, on the Lions tour. For a big man, he's got very good hands. And their back row, they, you know, they just seem to have a, a, a huge reservoir of certainly open sides and back row forwards. And, you know, Jenkins back, Basham, who, uh, who does exactly as his surname sounds, and Wainwright seems to me to be quite a, 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 a handy unit as well. Yeah, the only surprise in the pack for me was no Ross Moriarty, which I thought, given the loss of um, players such as Faletau, Navidi, etc., who add that bit of dynamism, um, not to mention Moriarty's comparative experience to the likes of Basham and Jenkins, I would have thought in the rich vein of form he may well have come in, but he hasn't. I'm not sure how much rugby he's been playing. Has he? he certainly played very well uh, in, in recent weeks, but... Uh, he's had various injury problems over the years, hasn't he? Certainly recently. But as Nick says, back row is not a problem area for Wales. They grow on trees down there. Absolutely terrific sort of squadra of back row players to, to pick from. That won't be their problem, I don't think. Can the front five live with the island front five, who are probably the best, arguably the best front five in the championship? Uh, and can they get their dangerous outside backs enough ball in the right places to, to really go to work? As we've all said, you don't write Wales off because they've proved us wrong so many times. You know, unlike Scotland, the other way, Wales keep proving us wrong the other way. But this Ireland squad is so, Ireland team is so solid at the moment. Uh, the way they put away Japan, Argentina, New Zealand by big scores. And the, the basis of that Leinster team, and we saw it when they cranked it up against Bath uh, for about half an hour the other day, just disappeared into the distance. That is a, is a mighty... Uh, squad of players and if they if they hit it right on the first day you know Wales are going to be in for a long afternoon yeah I mean the switch of uh, Andrew Porter from tight head to loose head oh yes oh who, yes who, who, whoever had that idea is a genius because it, he's transformed their scrum he's so dynamic and powerful in the scrummage and his technique is so good at loose head which I think he played before they switched him to tight head mm. He, he's definitely one of the players that, um, that could cause Wales a bucket full of problems and, and anybody else coming down the track. I think what's interesting about this fixture is we're going to have two tens as captains. 
I don't have a stat on it, but I, I cannot imagine that that has happened too many times in a Six Nations game. But what do you think about that battle between Sexton and Bigger? For me, it's um, you know, the older statesman. Uh, there's nothing they, either of them have not seen. Bigger's matured you know, really well. I mean, the guy was too intense and in the referee's face a lot of the time. And I think he stepped back or I get the impression that he stepped back from there. Johnny Sexton is just intense. That's the way he is. You can imagine he's pretty much like that off the field as well. That's his personality. That's his character. He, he is the captain in all senses of the world. I think we've seen him coming off, uh, I think, in recent times. And he wasn't too happy to be taken off. But it seems they've got over that. And he's mm. back there in place. It's just how long can Johnny last? He's very committed. He never shirks a tackle. He always gets involved in the contacts. And you just fingers crossed for him and Ireland that he, he, he can last through the, the Six Nations. I... It will be a very tight tussle between those two in terms of performances as individuals, not as teams. I mean, I see Ireland winning this quite comfortably. But as, as individuals and their performances, I, you know, who wouldn't want to be sexed as opposed to bigger because the pack he's got in front of him is on fire at the moment. Isn't there also sort of an argument if Alan Wynne-Jones hadn't batted on so incredibly, I can see bigger actually being captain for Wales for two or three years, if, or certainly if Alan Wynne-Jones had retired after the World Cup. I mean, he is the natural leader and captain of that group, I think. And I think it's got a great appointment. And like Jerry says, you know, he used to snipe away at the rest non-stop. Now, he has stepped back a bit, and he's going to have to, because you've got to get a di dialogue with a referee when you're the captain. You cannot be having these little snipes and tantrums. So it's going to be very interesting, just on a, a sort of um, lasering in on, on how he performs uh, on Saturday, exactly how he handles that. I think he'll do it very well, and he'll be a very good Wales captain. Yeah, it's always that thing of can the leopard um, change his spots um, with him. He gets so engaged, he's so fierce in terms of his his commitment to the cause and to the game that uh, I think that you know we we know that he's not been able to keep it in check in the past. And you're you're right, he is going to have to keep it in check now. As for uh, Johnny Sexton, Father Time waits for no man. He seems to be uh, pushing it to the uh, far boundaries at the moment, and uh, and good luck to him. Although he looks he looks fit at the moment, but um, I'd be quite surprised. Uh, don't want to be a sort of doom watch merchant, but I'd be quite surprised if he sees out the uh, the, the the Six Nations, and then of course they have to uh, they have to rebalance. And that could be one of Ireland's few Achilles heels. I'm going to put a halt in the rugby analysis for a moment as we take a brief interim um, to ask 15 questions to our special guest. This is Jerry Guscott's Random Rugby 15. Jerry, you can say as many or as few words as you want. Number one, nickname. Clyde Wilber would name me Prince of Centres. I was very pleased with that. Uh, my mates at school called me Gus, Gussie, Jer. Uh, all standard, and there's a few more that we clearly won't mention. Best rugby memory? I can't single out one because of the teams I played for, the performances we, we put in. Uh, it was just, I had a marvellous time with the club, and England, we were reasonably successful, and, and I loved every single Lions tour. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Yeah, I'm sure there were lots off the field, but uh, again, I've been quite fortunate on it. Yeah, I just, yeah, I couldn't get that embarrassed. I stuck close to the forwards, they looked after me. And uh, I'd blame anybody else if something went wrong. Pre-game tune? Uh, we didn't have much tunage, uh, not, much, not much tunes uh, back in those days. I think 
play Sony PlayStation might have come out, you know, the disc. Uh, some of the guys might have used those. Um, but I, you know, I like the atmosphere of the change room. I like I like the coach trip. So, yeah, I didn't need any music to get me going or to get me revved up to play a game of rugby. Post-game meal or drink? Anything going. Best player you've played against? Best player i played against would be Tim Horan, Australian centre. Came across him in 89 on a Lions tour. He was just a young puppy then, about 18 years old. Really good player, really good person. And I put alongside that, Jonah Lomi, just a phenomenon. Best player you've played with? Best player I probably played with was a guy called John Hall, blindside flanker for Bath. Uh, didn't play enough games for England. But yeah, he was an incredible player and I you know, would live in today's rugby comfortably. Favourite player right now? My favourite player is uh, Radwan. I think he is a phenomenon. We talked about uh, Lewis Resummit earlier this kid is electric reminds me so much of Jason Robinson when Robbo came into rugby union from rugby league he came to Bath I just sat back and watched that kid go it was incredible to watch and Radwan I think is as exciting possibly even more I mean I saw him sort of score a try against Gloucester nobody got near him it was he's got that flat out acceleration he can zip side to side can't I just want to see more of him now, I'm not supposed to talk during these sections, but I do not understand where Adam Radwine is at the moment. Um, but there we go. Rugby idol. Don't have a rugby idol. My my sporting idol as a kid was Pele. But um, yeah, rugby, no. Favourite stadium? My favourite stadium, apart from the recreation ground here in Bath uh, and Twickenham, would be the National Stadium in Cardiff, as it was back then. A great atmosphere. You were right up close to the fans. You could feel the breath on the back of the neck, uh, which was a bit uncomfortable at times, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, the intimacy made it intense. And you, that's something you just had to rise to. You had to be, it got you going. I love, I love the atmosphere there. Favourite gym exercise? Uh, my favourite gym exercise would be uh, an Olympic bar clean, not the jerk. But uh, yeah, I, that got your strength in, in, in your legs in your glutes and your back. And, and yeah, that's a very, very good uh, foundation and platform to have. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? No idea. I was a bricklayer by trade when I was younger. I guess I would have stuck at that. Uh, might be a builder, might have people working for me. But yeah, I really don't have a clue. Superstitions? Uh, are they superstitions or not? I used to wear the same trunk, swimming trunks. They lasted about a decade. I mean, literally there was... The elastic had gone, the string, it, they were restringed, they were all sorts, but I kept those. So that's a superstition. We used to change in the same spot in the changing room. I, and I guess they are superstition. So that, that would be those. Rugby rule you would change? Get rid of the subs. Get, don't have as many subs. That's an easy one. I just, I'm so frustrated about that. Um, but I'm tired of hearing myself say it now. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? Having an opinion. Uh, simple as that. Uh, it's a good platform just to say what you feel, right or wrong. It's yours. You, you've got to own it. Um, but also, you can change your mind. Fantastic. All right. Thanks for that, Jerry. We will get back to the rugby now. I want to touch upon France very quickly. And you can't mention France without mentioning Antoine Dupont, who looks like he will not, not only be fit, but as he was in the autumn, captain. Jerry, I saw that you mentioned his legacy in an article published by the rugby paper a couple of days ago, previewing the Six Nations. What does he have to do to be regarded as, you know, have a long-term legacy as a scrum half and be regarded among the best scrum halves of all time? 
there's no doubt he is uh, world class. He, he is a brilliant player, and he is incredibly influential. That's <clears throat> I think that's what sets him apart, and that's what sets the best apart from the rest in in the global game. They're just able to have that impact and make a really huge impression. Not always game changers, but a lot of the time they are. But the, there's no weakness to Dupont's game. I mean, we've seen a lot of good French nines. I mean, that is, I think, the iconic position in French rugby. They're normally, you know, the leaders, the generals of, of their of their team. But I, his pass is solid. His box kick is high and hangs and, and enables the players to be competitive underneath it. He's good off his left, off his right. He's got good acceleration. He's got great vision. He's not selfish. He doesn't always make the break. He, he gets rid of that pass. Every defence is always guessing. He's not readable. You never know what you can do. And he's so powerful in that tight area with forwards that are you know, sometimes a foot taller than him and at least three, four stone plus heavier than him. And he can push them away at ease with that powerful first three or four strides that he has. And I expect him to have as big an impact in this Six Nations as, as he's had in the last couple. Do France have the best backline in the Six Nations? Because with the likes of Vakatawa coming back into it, Untermach has now been playing rugby for an extended period of time after his lengthy layoff. D- Damien Penault, in my opinion, is the best winger in the Northern Hemisphere. I don't see a weakness in their backline. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they've got uh, an exceptional backline, and the 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 hinge man in it. And I know that uh, he's a great favourite of Jerry's, but he's he's been made defensive uh, leader as well. Is Fiku? He's the player that I think that uh, that that backline revolves around as much as almost it does uh, Dupont. I think that. Uh, you know, I mean, injury always plays a part in 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 Six Nations. They've got depth. Uh, Arthur Vincent is a very is a very fine player as well, so they've got depth in that position. Jaminet, I like a, a huge amount. I mean, from what I've seen of him, he's he. I mean, we're talking about players to watch coming up, but he's definitely one to watch because he looks like a fail safe goal kicker, but he's also extremely potent on the counter attack as well. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, you know, what Pinot's been doing, he's been scoring tries for fun for uh, Claremont, who, who aren't playing particularly well. So that says everything about his class. So, yeah, look, I, I don't think that there's a back line uh, to match them. With DuPont, everything you say, I would concur totally. There is a, a big drop-off from DuPont to the next France nine. So it would, you wouldn't only be losing his sheer virtuosity as a player, but you go down to somebody who is a much lesser player. I think France, uh, as a collective, as a group, will get over that. When you have a world-class player, it very rarely will you have a second one. Uh, we get it from time to time, but um, I just think the side as a, as a whole are on such a role. Um, they're in form, and you, you can feed off that. You could get a very, what might be considered, well, everything's going to be average after Dupont. Uh, I feel sorry for the guys who have to maybe uh, replace him, but you can ride on that wave of the side. You'll find, where if you've got, in this case, maybe nine or ten players playing really, really well, you can get, you can get almost an also ran in there, and they will rise to that level because it becomes infectious. So, yeah, I don't see too many problems in that particular area if Dupont got injured. 
Just want to touch upon Italy. Lost 32 in the row. Do you guys foresee a playoff as their way in to earn their place in the Six Nations? Do you think they should stay? Do you think South Africa could come in? I know that's been mentioned. I would be fiercely opposed to that for reasons that we don't have time to get into. But what's your opinion? Six Nations don't want to go there. They've made it quite clear. Uh, of course, there should be a playoff every season between the bottom of Six Nations and the top of um, Rugby Europe. I can't see any reason why that shouldn't be. And of course, it would actually, in the long term, strengthen Italy if they have to play for their lives every season. That's great because they haven't been playing for their lives for 10 years. I can't remember really the last time an Italy team dug deep like they used to, even when they got beaten. All the guys would tell you that they've been in a match. But I just don't get that feeling with Italy anymore. They don't have to dig deep. They don't have to go to the well. Something has to be done in terms of parachuting a, a top coach uh, into Italy. And that's no disrespect to Kieran Crowley, who has a good record, certainly did very well with Canada. But they need somebody who can really, you know, capture the imagination there, I think. And... Um, you know, if, if they're not prepared to play ball in terms of what the Six Nations uh, sees as a remedy, then, um, you know, they've got to look at the exit door. Just very quickly to wrap up, in as few words as possible, your ones to watch and your tournament predictions. Uh, Hugh um, Keen, one to watch, very underrated, uh, and he'll be operating in a team that's got plenty of pill and might be going wide more than normal, and team to win the championship. It's going to be on points difference. It's going to be that tight, but I'm going with Ireland. Player to watch, Marcus Smith. I think that what he's done over the last couple of seasons has been remarkable. And um, to win France, I don't see it being on points difference. I think that they'll win it outright. Uh, my player to watch, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, Freddie Stewart improves on um, what he did in the autumn. I, I just think he's so solid. He's impressive. He's scoring tries. And the side I think will win will be Ireland. I think in the, the game when they played France, France always give you opportunities to win. And I think they'll give Ireland too many opportunities to win that game. Are we all agreed no Grand Slam? Yeah, I can't see a Grand Slam this season. So that's definitely one now. <laughs> right, gents. It's been an absolute pleasure, but we are going to have to leave things there for today. Thanks for joining. And to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the first episode of the Rugby Paper podcast. Join us again next Thursday after the weekend's festivities, where we will be previewing the fixtures in week two. Enjoy the rugby and we will see you then.